the way that we think, the way that we plan, it's all impacted by time. And we know we only have so much time, and we don't know how much time we have. Time that is wasted or lost, there's no recovering it. And in a sense, Christians are living on borrowed time because we, well, time that's been gifted to us because we were dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus washed us clean. We're now forgiven and heading to heaven, but we have a job to do. It's like all the time we have is a gift from God to be used. And we have an, an opportunity to serve him like we never could before. We, we use terms like spare time and free time. Free time is defined as time available for hobbies and other activities that you enjoy. Time that is free from duties or responsibilities. And when I read that, I was thinking, wow, as a Christian, we really don't ever have free time from duties and responsibilities before God to acknowledge him and to worship him and to, to uh, walk in obedience to him. And it's great that he's given us leisure, relaxation, and holidays. Those are gifts that we can gladly enjoy but the thing that really struck me is, when I have free time, do I prefer to spend it with God? Do I prefer to intentionally seek him in those times? What we see as spare time or free time is really ordained time by God. So uh, in this, I guess, coming off holidays, you got, some of you still might be on holiday, uh, but something to be thinking about. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5, if you'll turn there. One of C.T. Studd's most memorable quotes is in a poem that he wrote, which said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Each one of us has 24 hours a day to walk in worship and obedience to God. And, and we all have all the time there is. Nobody has 36 hours in a day that they can leverage. We all have 24. We all have the same amount of time to be serving God and for us to accomplish what God desires, there has to be a level of intentionality and a sense of urgency. We see that in Jesus. He, was, he knew who had sent him. He knew the purpose for which he had been sent. And he applied himself to do that. And he said in John 9, 4 and 5, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's very intentional knowing what he had been called to and that he was going to purpose to be doing that. He was about the Father's business. He had knowledge of every need of every human being while he walked this planet, but he wasn't rushed. We can be quite overwhelmed with all the needs in our own lives, much less everyone else's, but he was always on time because he was being filled with the Spirit and following him. And there's that picture of, hey, we've got to work while it's day because night's coming and there's no opportunity to work. There was this window of opportunity he had and he was going to make the most of it. And we, have, we all have opportunities to serve the Lord in a way today that we may not have tomorrow. There could be an injury. There could be an accident. Who knows what the future holds? We have a unique and dynamic opportunity to impact the world with the gospel the love of Jesus Christ. And as long as we're in the world, can we say like Jesus, I will be the light of the world. We don't have any light in us, but as his light shines through us, um, it, it brings transformation. It brings life and liberty to all who believe. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for 
just the time that you've given us here today, but also the time you've given us, you've given us every day till this point to get to know you, to spend time with you, to, to have fellowship with you and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask, Lord, that this time would be sweet as we draw near to you together. As we read your word, may you minister to each heart. And we ask, God, that you would have your way, you would fill us with your spirit, and that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to each one of us. May you be lifted up and glorified. And as we celebrate communion and, and remember and proclaim your death till you come, may it be a, really a sacred time, a time where we come before you humbly and joyfully, remembering all that you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17, is where we begin. It says, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. After Peter and John had healed a lame man in the name of Jesus Christ, they were severely threatened by the chief priests and scribes never again to teach or to speak the name of Jesus again. But they wouldn't say Jesus. They said, in that name. We told you, do not speak in this name again. So they made it very clear. The previous passage that we read last week, it says multitudes of people were being brought into the church. They were, they were also bringing their sick relatives and those who were oppressed by demons, and they were being healed and delivered. So finally, the high priest has had enough. The apostles are teaching and preaching. They, they're doing the exact thing. They said, stop doing this. And it says they arrested them and put them in the common prison. It says that the high priest with the Sadducees, that was a group that denied the existence of the spirit world. They rejected the afterlife or the resurrection. They leveraged religion for political and personal gain. Said they were filled with indignation and arrested them. And in verse 19, it says something very ironic. God sent an angel, something they did not believe in, to release the apostles from the prison and to tell them what to do to preach all the words of this life. They were not released for their comfort. It wasn't because they had been wrongfully imprisoned. It was for a purpose that those doors swung open and they walked out. He said, go teach the people in the temple all the words of this life. They were to talk about the whole gospel, everything, even things that people might be a bit squeamish about when we talk about the blood of Jesus, we, we sing about being washed in the blood of Jesus, and that, that doesn't, it's not appealing, is it? But the Jews understood what that meant very well, because to be have their sins atoned for, they would have to offer a sacrifice. And for the priest to even be qualified to offer that sacrifice for them, they would have to have a blood of a sacrifice put on them. So the blood would be put on their, their right ear, their right thumb, their right big toe, and then sprinkled. So they're being sprinkled with this blood, and then they were consecrated to actually offer a sacrifice. So having the blood of the sacrifice on you, it, it wasn't um, revolting or disgusting. It was necessary. And uh, you can read about that in Exodus 29. When Jesus died on the cross as the lamb without blemish or spot, he did away with the need for animal sacrifices today. 
because he provided a sacrifice once and for all. It says in, in Isaiah 52:15 that his blood has sprinkled many nations. So it's a spiritual sprinkling. We don't have to have physical blood on us today because that blood is applied to our lives through faith. When we trust in Jesus, we are washed spiritually. By faith, we are cleansed. We are forgiven. And so these believers, they were free to do the exact thing. The ruler said, do not do this one thing. This is what God tells them to do. To go stand in the temple and speak all the words of this life. Now, if you had been arrested and you were thrown into prison, and the angel opened the door and said, go into the temple and preach all the words of this life, would you have gone? It's hard for me to put myself in that situation, but I was really given a think, saying, hmm, well, they don't want me to do that. But here's an angel actually opening the door. That would give you an, an amount of boldness, wouldn't it? That you're now being divinely released from prison for a purpose. It would be very specific. Every Christian today was once in a sin of darkness, sin, and death. We are all commissioned to be his witnesses. We were like those prisoners in solitary confinement, scratching out days and months and years on the walls of a cell, awaiting damnation because we deserved punishment for our sin. We were in silence and there was no hope for us, but we've been liberated through Christ. We've been set free and set free for a purpose that we could know him, that we could speak freely of him, that we can introduce others to him. Instead of returning to the sinful lifestyle that landed us in prison in the first place, we're now called to be about his business and be obedient to the leading of the Spirit. Whatever he says, that's what we're to do. So the question is, how do we use, how do you use the freedom God has given you, primarily for yourself or for him? I, if I was in prison, the first thing I'd want to do is go to my family and just say, hey, I'm all right, things are okay, you know, don't need to worry about me. We don't read these guys doing that. They just went straight to the temple and they did what God told them to do. Now, I don't ask you this question to guilt you in any way because we're all guilty. No matter how much time we've, we've spent serving the Lord, there's been plenty of time to this point in our lives we have served ourselves. Um, but I want to exhort you to consider how God is worthy of your free time. God is worthy that we would be following him and obedient to what he says because he's the one who's purchased us, he has freed us, and he has commissioned us to serve him. Verse 21, and when they heard that, these are the, the apostles that were in prison, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. When that prison door was swung open by the angel, they went to the temple early and they taught. The priests, Sadducees, they were on another page, really. They were having their staff meeting. They were deciding, okay, what are we going to do with these guys? All right, let's bring them in. They go to the, the jail, and the guards are outside. They're awake, alert. They open the doors, and to everyone's surprise, there's no one in there. It's a bit reminiscent when 
Jesus was crucified on the cross and laid in a tomb, having died, and it was sealed with a Roman seal and guarded by Roman guards, and yet that could not hold him because he rose from the dead. The power that raised Jesus from the dead operated in the lives of these believers. The grave could not hold the resurrected Christ, and no prison could contain the message of the gospel that God would have them speak. Now, there's been many believers who have been incarcerated and remained in prison till the time of their death since this time. God sovereignly allowed that. People who have been falsely imprisoned or wronged, to be separated from their families, to be tortured, to even be killed. But this doesn't change the fact that when we are in Christ, whether we're in prison or free, we have been set free indeed of sin. And we now have fellowship with God that we never had before. There used to be a wall separating us between uh a wall that blocked us from fellowship with God. But now that's been broken down by Jesus and by his shed blood. Verse 24. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. This power play by the high priest, it spectacularly backfires. The empty prison cell was not part of their plans. They had been intending to threaten and to uh, teach these apostles a lesson, and there they are in the temple preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't you love the bold obedience of these men? They did not fear the rich or powerful. They did not count their own lives as precious to themselves because they had been bought by Jesus. They had been freed. And, and this caused me to think about there's a difference between boldness in obeying Christ and the foolhardiness of our flesh. Because the flesh likes to be recognized. People are willing to pay a high price, even those who follow Christ at times, to be recognized or to be known or, or just to thumb their nose at the authorities. That's not what's happening here. These guys are not rabble-rousers. They're being obedient to what God told them to do. They're not teaching anyone a lesson. They're not trying to show how tough they are. They are doing what God told them to do. And that meant going into the temple and preaching the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will always glorify Jesus Christ, not the messenger or even himself. The apostles had, it seems, the respect and the audience of the people. It says that the leaders, when they went to arrest them, they did so without violence because if they seemed to do anything untoward, the people that they were talking to would have protected them. And I'm blown away that when the leaders came to collect them, though they had a command from God, they respected the authority and they went willingly. They didn't hide behind the audience. They say, whoa, whoa, we're on a mission from God. We're, we have to be here. But when the authorities came and sought them out, they went willingly. Instead of standing up for their own rights, they humbled themselves before God and the authorities, the authorities that hated Jesus. And this is a challenge. We see Jesus doing the same. Acts 5, 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. The disciples are brought before the very same men who had condemned Jesus to death. The high priest says, didn't we strictly command you not to teach in this name? And then he gives them this backhanded compliment. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Would, would to God that, that every unbeliever and everyone in our city would have heard the gospel. They would know the way of salvation that God has made for them. And then he says, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, Peter was not trying, or nor the apostles, trying to bring these authorities to justice for wrongly crucifying Christ. But in a sense, they would love it if the blood of Jesus would be upon them. Even as they had shouted when they condemned him to death, what did they say? They said, let his blood be upon us and our children. They were guilty of the blood of Jesus, but the blood of Jesus could also wash them from their sin and make them born again. So in one sense, they were telling the truth, but not in the sense that they, they were accusing them of. The last time I toured Israel, I was struck by something our secular Jewish guide said of Christianity. He said, Jews don't want people to become Jews. They make it as hard as possible for people to join up. You put as many hoops in the way as possible. You know, oh, you've got to be from here, and you've got to learn Hebrew. and you, it, There's like a whole bunch of things you have to do. But he said, Christianity is a missionary religion. You guys will recruit anybody because you want everyone to trust in Jesus. And this is a non-Christian saying this. And I was like, oh, you, you got about, you're about right with that. Yes, we would like everybody, everyone who has tasted and seen through the gospel, the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, the salvation and the transformation that the Holy Spirit brings in our lives. We want everyone to taste and see that God is good, to be free of the, the shackles of sin, to be brought out of the darkness and into the light, to have a, an eternal destination in the heavens with the Lord, to have fellowship with God and with other Christians. And Peter and the other apostles, and it says, from this we gather it's more than just John. It may have been the whole lot of them at that time. They said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And we see whenever they're asked a question, having been filled with the Spirit, they give a direct answer they speak all the truth, they, and they, they do the same thing. If you were to go back and look at the, the address in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and now in chapter 5, you'll see that these elements are always included, that Jesus was sent by God as the Messiah, that the Jews were guilty of the blood of Jesus because they con condemned him to death, and that Jesus rose from the dead. Those three things are in all of those uh, sermons that Peter and the apostles shared. Critical to the gospel. Now these rulers would have debated and opposed every one of those claims. They say, oh, Jesus isn't from God. Oh, his body was stolen by the uh, disciples and made excuses. Do you, did you notice there when he alluded to Jesus having been hung on a tree? This doesn't mean that it's not contradicting the fact that uh, the scripture says he was, he was uh, crucified on a cross. He is alluding to Deuteronomy. If you could turn to Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. 
Remember the Jews had been given the law. These were masters and doctors of the law, the lawyers who made decisions based upon the law. They were the judges. And he says, he was hung on a tree, showing that Jesus had been accursed and accursed by God for us. If you read in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, it says, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now, Jesus did no sin deserving of death, but he took upon himself all of our sins, all the sins of the world. And the only way that we could be freed from the curse of sin is if a perfectly righteous man took our curse and our sin upon himself, which Jesus did. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when we confess our sins and we repent of them, and we choose to place our faith in Christ, then we are cleansed of our sin, and not only are we washed clean, but the righteousness of Christ, the Bible says, is imputed. That means to be credited to your account. It's his righteousness, but it's like we get credit for it, in a sense, before God. We don't deserve it. It's all by his grace. We can be reconciled by God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and we can be brought into an intimate and good relation with God that was not experienced since before the fall, through Jesus. And that's amazing. Not just, it's like, not just being declared innocent, but being exonerated and pardoned as if we were completely innocent all along, with no memory of our failures. They say, and we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Being filled with the Spirit and obedience go together. When we're filled with the Spirit by grace through faith, we are enabled to obey. But you cannot expect to have the fullness of the Spirit if you refuse to obey what God has said. We don't earn or deserve such a filling, but if we ask, the Bible says, in I think Luke 11, Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So it's he is available for the asking. If we will ask, we will receive based upon that. What was the response of the hearers when they hear this? So they were furious and they sought to kill them. You can speak the truth, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't mean everyone's going to enjoy or receive the message. Some will hate it and some will hate us for it when we're bold to speak the truth that God tells us to. And, and I don't know about you, I have put a lot of pressure on myself in the past for the perfect gospel delivery. You know, you want to say the right thing at the right time. And, uh, sometimes I have, and, and I say this just observing my own life, is at times I have thought the reception of the gospel depended upon my delivery rather than trusting the power of the gospel and God to be involved in this person being humble and receiving. It's interesting because we have this, this good news to share, but it's at the same time offensive news. It offends people to, to, be, to know or to be called out as a sinner. 
It's not our job to call people out. But the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I encourage you, when people don't immediately respond gladly, you don't need to feel like a failure. Because we see this is common. Jesus was the best preacher ever, and he was killed for his preaching. People were envious of the crowds that he followed and was accused as being demon-possessed when he only spoke the truth. He only spoke the word of God. If anyone's going to expository preach, you're not going to do better than him. And yet people didn't receive. You've got guys like Noah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the apostles. They were ignored. They were, they were hated. They were shamed for the things they spoke. And they were filled with the Spirit. So instead of using the response of people to measure how effective or worthwhile our efforts are, let's seek to be led by the Holy Spirit in our interactions with others. We don't need to discover what works in our culture or what's effective. When we're led by the Spirit who has knit together the bodies and souls of every person that we will be in contact with. And God knows what people need. And he's given us what we need in his word. And practically, everything that pertains to life and godliness, he has supplied. You'd say that Paul was filled with the Spirit, right? Wrote a lot of the New Testament. If I'll tell you what, if Paul was still traveling around today, I would be sitting and he would be preaching. I would have him preach. But he was jailed for preaching the truth. He, he, people went on hunger strikes saying, we are, we're not going to eat until we kill him because we hate that guy. And he was filled with the Spirit. So we can know that there will be opposition when we're filled with the, with the Spirit and when we're doing the right thing. And God will use you when you obey. That's something you can take to heart. When we obey him, God will use you, period. He will fill you when we humble ourselves before him. I want to be useful. I want the time that I have left. It's a small window. I don't know how long that window is going to remain open, but I want it to be fruitful time. Verse 34, Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census, and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who, who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men, and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles have said their peace, the teacher of the law, very respected, Gamaliel, likely the one who uh, Paul sat at his feet or stood at his feet as he taught him. Um, he stands up and he, he commands the apostles to go outside so they could discuss the matter more freely. And he said, he urged caution. He said, be careful what you intend to do concerning these men. And he brings up a couple of examples, Theodos and Judas men who were popular to follow for a short season. One had 400 followers. But soon after their deaths, their followings died off. 
They, they struck the shepherd and the sheep were scattered. Gamaliel did not trust in Christ. He was unwilling to place his faith in him, but he urged caution. He says, if this work is of men, it's going to be nothing. And they all believed it was a work of men. They didn't believe that Jesus was a man of God, these unbelieving leaders. And But, but he says, if it's of God, there's nothing you can do against it. You can't fight against God and win. People have done much to quash even the mention of Jesus' name, and here we are a couple of thousand years later singing songs to Jesus and reading the word of God in Australia, which is really awesome. He has sprinkled many nations. The examples Gamaliel used, they really aren't great examples because Theodos and Judas both died and stayed dead. Jesus rose from the dead. So he's still alive. He's still in charge. He's still governing. He's sitting on the throne and he's directing his people. And he empowers us to continue to be unified in his name. He was right on a couple of points. The, the rulers should be careful about how they dealt with the apostles and the followers of Jesus because, and he doesn't say this, God will avenge them. God will hold them, will not hold them guiltless who hurt his people. And since the sending and salvation through Christ is a work of God, his followers uh, will be impossible to crush because God is upholding them. It is impossible to uh, rid the world of those who follow Jesus because it's a work of God. Many people have fought against it, but yet it continues to gain momentum. Verse 40, it says they agreed and then they beat them, which is a bit, again, ironic. Before they had merely threatened them, they had severely threatened them, but it didn't seem to have much of an impact. So this time they just ramped it up a notch. Uh, they beat them. And the word for beat is very strong. It means to scourge or to flay. It means to whip to the point where your skin is ripped and it's falling off your body. This was a beating. It was humiliating as well because when a person was scourged, you would be stripped naked in a public place and there would be, they would be saying what your crimes were and making an example out of you so everyone else would be afraid and not want to have that happen to them. I'm not, you know, you look at someone's food and you say, I want to have what he's having. Well, if you look over and you see the guy being flayed, you know, his back ripped over, and you're like, oh, I do not want that. Definitely not. The persecution of the church was escalating quickly, and one might imagine this might be a clear deterrent that would keep people from coming to faith in Christ, but it was a work of God that would not be overthrown, and people continued. The church grew. This was the price believers paid for teaching others of Christ, of his death and resurrection. It was at the risk of their own blood. But look at how they respond in verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they had been severely beaten, and it said they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why? Doesn't seem much to rejoice about. But it says they rejoice that they were counted worthy by God to suffer shame for his name. The word worthy means to be deemed entirely deserving. God has counted us to be entirely deserving to suffer shame for Jesus, to suffer 
for God's sake. There's no mention of the pain here, but there is mention of the word shame. These are two different things, right? There's physical pain, but then there's shame. Something that happens inside of us when we're embarrassed or, uh, you know, we're humiliated because something has happened. They had been dishonored. They had been shamed and mistreated, but they rejoiced because in having this happen, they identified with their Savior who had been scourged for their sakes. He, too, had been scourged, and they wore those stripes as a, a badge of God's favor upon them, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the sake of Christ. Jesus had been shamed, and they had been shamed for him. But they were able to get past the feeling of personal shame that they felt and rejoice because they had fellowship with God, as we'll see. If you could please turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10. Something that Paul wrote. I think it's so, so useful that in our culture, people are not scourged for talking about Jesus. But are they shamed? Definitely. So this is very applicable to us. Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. Paul wrote, Yet indeed I count also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. We'll just stop there. Have you ever noticed that when you begin to obey uh, God's calling or leading upon your life, you begin to identify with people in the Bible in a different way? I remember when God called me and my family to Australia, I identified with Abraham in a new way because God told him to leave his family and to go somewhere. Now, in my case, I knew I was going to the east side of Australia. I didn't exactly know where, but I kind of had that at least. But Abraham, he had no idea where he was going. But he believed God and he obeyed. And so I began to identify a little bit more. And I, these believers, as they were scourged, they had the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. They began to taste a little bit of what he went through. And it brought them closer together. There was a fellowship there that they would not have had otherwise. And you don't have to be scourged or, you know, flagellate yourself to, to get what Jesus went through. That's not the point. The point is, in obedience to God, sometimes shameful things happen. And we will be given the strength through Christ's life in us. It's like when he was, when they were getting flogged, Jesus was being flogged. He was taking that for them because he enabled them to endure it and to rejoice in it. And that's something I can't do, right? And by myself, by yourself, I have a cold and I'm not happy. But to have something like this and to come through it and respond in the way they did, that is a work of God. And if we will endure, we need God. We need to rely upon him. 
you would agree that the power of the Holy Spirit is advantageous and useful. Like, yeah, I want that. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. But see what happened when people were led by the Spirit and they obeyed the Spirit. They're scourged. They're publicly shamed. Some might say, well, why obey God if it means pain or suffering? What sort of God does that to his people, allows them to suffer like that? To such a question, I would answer, do you realize that Jesus endured this for you? We are not, he was not worthy to take those blows. I'm the one who was worthy. But he chose to take those blows for me. And though I am worthy of blows when I am obedient to God and I am shamed for it, he's the one who, who takes that. He, re, he receives the glory. These believers, they understood what we have sometimes yet to learn. Because Jesus has endured shame and suffering for us, we can rejoice in suffering for his sake. Suffering for Jesus is not a burden. It's like, oh, you know, it's my cross to bear you could say. It is a privilege. We deserve to suffer for our sin. That's what we deserve to do. But to actually suffer shame for the case, for the sake of Christ, that is amazing. Our flesh recoils from this. But there's something in our spirit that says, yes, that I could have the resurrected power of Jesus in my life, that I might be even counted worthy to suffer shame for his sake. Not to build our self-confidence, not to stroke our pride or our ego about what we've accomplished or how we've humbled ourselves. That doesn't sound very humble, does it? Uh, but to cause us to know better, that we could know God better. Verse 42, it says, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ with raw backs. You know where they went the very next day? Into the temple daily in the temple. They did not cease teaching Jesus as the Christ. Instead of trying to save their own skins, they preached the Jesus who saved their souls. And how this testimony can put me to shame. These men endured shame and suffering I have never known. And they were increasingly bold to preach Jesus in every place. They went like, well, is this okay? All right, but as led by the Spirit, they did what God told them to do. And that's what we need to just hone in on. Are we going to be obedient to what God has told you to do? The fear of feeling shamed is a reason we keep silent, but these men rejoice to be shamed for the sake of Christ. And the thought occurred to me that if I, am, if I feel guilty that others have suffered shame for Christ and I have not, it likely springs from pride. And that is to be confessed as sin. Let's, if, if we follow Jesus, we will suffer shame in this world. Period. It's not like if you suffer shame for Christ. No, if you're living for Jesus, you will suffer shame. A degree of shame. But when we do suffer, let's rejoice that we know Christ better because of it. If guilt is what's moving us to speak of Christ, we will never be able to endure the shame. But if it's the love of God and the Spirit of God that's helping us speak, then we will endure and will overcome all by His grace. Could you please turn to Isaiah 50, starting in verse 4. 
we're going to have a, a time to remember Christ's sacrifice with communion. It's open to everyone who's born again. And you're all invited to partake. Jesus said that we are to proclaim his death till he comes. So the first um, Sunday of every month, we take time to do this. Now this passage, it prophetically takes the perspective of Jesus as he faced suffering on the cross. I think you'll, it'll be like, whoa, I recognize this, I recognize that. Isaiah 50, starting in verse 4, says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Starts out like, I know how to speak a word of comfort to the weary. Didn't Jesus say, if you're weary, come unto me and find rest for your souls. Right? He called out to them. It said that he, he set his face like a flint to go up to Jerusalem. He knew that the, the day of his crucifixion was drawing near, that his hour was almost come. And he went. He didn't deviate when he could have run. He could have called legions of angels to deliver him. He could have just spoken the word and made it all end, and yet he went and submitted himself even to the death of the cross. He was arrested. He was struck. It says he gave his back to those who struck him. He gave his cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. And he didn't hide his face from shame and spitting. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. It's like the shame that he was feeling, the humiliation, that's common to every person when you're exposed as he was and, and falsely accused as he was, it was like nothing in his eyes because of the glorious future that awaited him and for all those who would be saved through his name. So isn't that crazy that he, it says here, I did not hide my face from shame. And then in verse 7, I know that I will not be ashamed. Have you ever given place to fear? And you felt ashamed because you had an opportunity to speak the words of truth, the words of life to someone, and because of fear of shame, you backed down, and you felt ashamed because of it. Well, Jesus, he says, I'm going to take that shame on, but I'm not going to be ashamed. I've set my face like a flint. I've decided to obey the Father. And his enemies would be destroyed like moths to flame, but he would rise from the dead glorified. As we receive the bread that represents the broken body of Jesus and we drink of the cup that represents the shed blood, let's remember the price that Jesus paid, that he didn't hide from shame. Um, but for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. 
And it is a great privilege to know that the Son of God chose to have His blood shed willingly so that we could have life, so we could be forgiven. And I want to live a life worthy of that sacrifice. I know in my flesh I cannot. But let's live to that end. That, you know, I haven't been purchased with gold or silver. I've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. The Son of God shed His blood for me. He suffered shame so that I could live. And if I ever have the opportunity to suffer shame for Him, I'm not going to regret it. And I'm not going to be afraid, but I'm going to rejoice that I've been counted worthy to suffer shame and embrace not only the resurrection power of Jesus, but fellowship of His suffering as we die to self. If I could please have the team come up. I'm just going to pray. And as they are singing and leading us in a song, please feel free to come down in a couple rows and take of the bread and the cup, and then I'll just lead us in a prayer so we can partake together. Jesus was able to look beyond the, the temporary physical pain and look to the eternal future. And may, may the Lord open our eyes to do the same. When we meet people, when he puts that idea in our head to, to speak the gospel to someone, let's do that boldly. Some people will receive. That, that good seed will fall on good ground and bear much fruit. But if the seed stays in the bag, how can it be fruitful? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Thank you that you've given us uh, time on this planet to live in a way that fully pleases you, that, that you've given us the example of Jesus setting his face like a flint, just being determined to obey the Father, and how these disciples, they were so bold, Lord, and and we want that boldness to mark our lives too. Not, not bold for ourselves or for our agenda, but Lord, that we would be bold in obeying what the Holy Spirit has led us to do. That we would uh, not shy away from it because of potential offense, but we would speak the truth in love. All the words of this life that you put on our lips, Lord, help us to speak it and really to live it. To live in such a way that is compelling evidence of Christ's resurrection. Lord, please forgive us of our sins. Uh, fill us afresh with your spirit. And as we consider the sacrifice of Christ and how he was pierced for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities, how the chastisement upon, uh, of his peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Lord, we praise you that through his blood you have sprinkled many nations. You've given us a, a new life through him. And I pray, Lord, that you would quicken us by your spirit to walk worthy of you, because you are worthy. You're worthy of all the time that we have, because all the time we have is from you. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today, and for some that perhaps do not know you, I pray that we would draw near to you with full assurance of faith, knowing that you hear us, you will answer us, and you are pleased when we gather in your name. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.